0: Praise be to God. If you've ever had someone bully you, at the end you're like, "Yes, finally, someone whose enemies have to submit." Although it's a little gruesome, but when you're dealing with the Lord, He doesn't mess around. As we open together, we are praying as a, a group um, before with the, the band, and and one of the guys was praying, and he said. Lord, as we see people that are just making a mess, and it, and it breaks our heart, and just doing these foolish, just frustrating things, and they get frustrated by it, and, and really, it's sin, and we don't understand it, and, and this week, we were talking about this this card, and this challenge, and how do we share the gospel, and so many people are unchurched, and in our culture, that how do you convince someone they're a sinner? And it came up multiple times, and I was like, okay, Lord, I'm listening, I should probably bring it up. And, and Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, is a pretty good example for us to see what a sinner who's been ignoring his sin for his life looks like when he's confronted with Christ. And a, a missionary I look up to because he, he serves and loves more than he actually teaches and preaches, he said, most people don't fear sin because they don't fear God. Most people don't fear God because they don't know God. And they don't know God because most preachers aren't preaching about God. And most preachers don't preach about God because most preachers don't know God. And it's, it's, it's convicting and it's like, I don't want to go there. I'm not going to throw a name. But statistics show that people who say they follow Jesus, 98% of them don't know the great commandment. They don't know what Jesus told us to do. And, and, and even if they kind of know it, they don't believe it's for them to do. Only 2% go, yeah, the great commission is to go into the whole world teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you to do, which means there has to be a goal of what a disciple is, a humble servant, fully devoted to following Jesus. And we have to be about his mission, building his kingdom, which means we should be fearful of God, knowing him, his power. And every time I bring up Revelation, it's this weird thing. Christians are like, oh, you're going to Revelation. It's like, well, actually, that's my like, my daughter has a pink birdie and we lost it in Florida and I went on eBay because I find things like that and then I found the pink birdie. It was the, the sister. One was Loretta, the other one was Bernice. I got Bernice. So I said, hey they were separated at birth. We lost Loretta but we're getting Bernice flown in literally and, and Harper was like, I don't, it's not the same. I'm like, I know but you know, geez, we got her sister and last night During a sermon prep, she came out. It's like, where's my birdie? It's like, yeah. That's what revelation is for the believer. We know what's going to happen. It's our comfort. And as we look at this, I'm going to kind of sidestep some of the the blatant, clear. He's a short guy. He's a sinner. There's a crowd. We're diving in. He's in a tree. And right away, I look at that and go, okay, what is Jesus doing? He's in Jericho, this amazing Just economic, one of the top three, the only top three economic places where there's tax collecting going on. And he has this huge pyramid scheme under him, which puts to death any other pyramid schemes we have today. He's the chief tax collector of all the tax collectors. And he goes in a tree. Genesis shows us after Eve and Adam ate the fruit, in the cool of the day, God was walking in the garden. And they did exactly what Zacchaeus does. They go into a tree and they hide and they look at God. And God's like, what are you, you're naked. What are you doing? Who told you you're naked? Oh, you ate. I, God knows all things, but God in this playful, again, we we learned in in Luke 18, it says you have to come like a child. He's playing hide and seek. That's the kid's favorite game. You know, whenever there's a kid, I'm like, peekaboo. The kid's like, ah, that's hilarious. Like, I know, I don't. I wish I could be a kid again and understand what's amazing about that. But in hide and seek, it's this playful, but yet like there's this deep reality that we need to be found. And we're longing and hoping someone will search for us. And I think as a kid, it's this like, uh uh-oh, I'm lost. I'm hiding kind of. Are you really going to search for me? Oh, good, you are. And here, the last salvation before the thief on the cross and the centurion. The last one, he goes back to the beginning. Luke, I could just see him being this brilliant doctor, knowing the human heart, knowing Theophilus as a young believer going, he needs to get the heart of the gospel, that God is the God who sees, the God who saves, and the God who's searching. And so he brings us back with the same image that we see in Genesis We see in Luke 18 where Zacchaeus, it's the story of God. It's really the story and the purpose fulfilled in Christ that he brings salvation. We see in verse 1, he enters and passes through Jericho. Behold, there was a man called by the name Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, super rich, juxtaposing the rich guy before that was like, I can't sell all I have and follow Jesus. What loser would do that? I'm going to keep all I have and leave Jesus. But Jesus goes into the most affluent, most just the lap of luxury and comfortable place you could live in this paradise where there's highways going through bringing all this commerce which would just jack up taxes because everyone has to travel through there. And Jesus has just healed the two blind men which blew everyone's mind because their theology of the day was that if you were blind, that means you or your parents sinned and you're paying for the sin and God hates you and has nothing to do with you. The only social economic class lower than a blind man was a tax collector. And Jesus doesn't go to a tax collector, tax collector. He goes to the chief tax collector. He goes to the bottom of the bottom of the barrel. And it's like, I want the lowest of the low because everyone needs to see how powerful and how good of a searcher I am of lost men. I'm going to go find the most lost man, and I'm going to save him, and it'll be no big deal. And so Jesus heals the two blind men, and then he goes and finds Zacchaeus. We see in 1 Corinthians 26, it says, consider your calling, brethren, there you are not Many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and despise. God has chosen the things that are not the nobodies, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before the Lord. So we see Zacchaeus in the story is looking for Jesus, but really we know. That, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, you're spiritually dead. There's a blindfold spiritually on you. You desire yourself, your worth, your money. It's all for you. You don't want to have anything to do with God. And so the only way that Zacchaeus would even look at Jesus is if God, by his grace, regenerated his heart. Exchanged it from a heart of stone with a heart of flesh that started to be curious about Jesus and look to Jesus. And Jesus ultimately really was looking for Zacchaeus there's a a man called Zacchaeus the name which his parents probably prayed for and were advised name him Zacchaeus and he will be what his name means clean innocent pure and righteous which he was far from that he was the furthest from pure clean and righteous he would do all the wrong things so it was a good attempt as parents we want to give our kids the best shot but sometimes it backfires right it's like ooh, man missed on that one Interestingly enough, Luke includes his name. We know the two um, blind guys, they had their name shared that were healed in in Mark, Bartimaeus. And church history says that Bartimaeus later became a prominent Christian that other believers would have known. So a young disciple, Theophilus, might have been considering his church options. And and he's got a job offer maybe to go to to, um, Caesarea. And he's like, well, I know there's there's a church there. Kind of a sketchy pastor runs it. His his name is Zacchaeus. Like he used to do a lot of bad things. I don't know if I want to go to that church. So church history tells us it's not in scripture. So don't try and look in the back of Acts. Uh, It's it's church history that says Zacchaeus became a a pastor of Caesarea. And later would would be replaced by the centurion that looked at Jesus on the cross. So interesting thing there that reminds us that the gospel, that's God's word, continued on from disciple to disciple, who were humble servants devoted to following Jesus and making disciples. So Luke is telling Theophilus, hey, you know, you might take that job. There's a good pastor. Zacchaeus is actually legit. But we see that there is a minimal tax code, like sales tax, property tax. But beyond that, it was basically whatever the tax collectors wanted and a chief tax collector. So they would tax... The amount of time you were on roads because it would break down the road. it would They would tax your axles and the amount of spokes you had on the wheels. You would tax the grain, the amount of grain you had, the amount of horses or donkeys it took to pull the... So there's tax on tax on tax on tax. So they're under this huge weight of just robbery that, you know, it was basically 1% was their income tax. And then the tax collector's like, oh, sweet. Well, you got five carriages coming with eight donkeys and we're just going to tax the snot that so they're like man this is so brutal so they got so much money and that's why the next point is Zacchaeus and Jesus they both make the crowd grumble so we see in in verse five when Jesus came to the place he looks up and, and said to him Zacchaeus hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today Zacchaeus had so much wealth because of his robbery and the crowd is like are you kidding me? You have ABC, First Baptist Church in Paso, Grace Slow. You have all these established churches doing all these great things. And you want to go to the Tuscaro State Hospital. That's where you're going to spend the night. Like, you're not going to go to any of these pastors, any of these Christians. Like, we're doing these good things for you, God. It's like, no, I want that convicted felon. I'm going to hang out with that guy. Now, obviously, there's a loophole in man's law that says, hey, I'm, I'm actually rich, and so obviously God blessed me, because well, I actually stole from you, but we're not talking about God's law, we're talking about man's law, and I'm awesome. And so everyone knows he's guilty, everyone knows he's the crook, and Jesus is like, yeah, he's filthy, sinner, disgusting, and I'm going to his house. And the command was, get out of the tree, and it was, again, this playful kid God, like, he has his sleeping bag and his toothbrush and, and his little... Sleeping medicine. He's like, I'm ready to stay the night. Zacchaeus, get out of the tree. That's the Greek there. We we miss it because we don't speak Greek. But the cool thing is, like Jesus was like, Zacchaeus, get out of the tree. I'm gonna spend the night at your house today. Which, I mean, I don't. I've never told a grown man that. Like it's so weird. To, like as a kid, I looked forward to Friday nights, like staying the night at my friend's house, and we were always trying to make those plans. But I would ne- it's just a little weird, you know. Jesus is like Zacchaeus, I gotta stay the night at your house. It's like, oh, okay. And that's probably why the crowd grumbled. It's like, okay, it's one thing to hang out with prostitutes and tax collectors. You're taking it too far. Now you're staying at someone's house? That wasn't on the card you gave us, Brandon. Like, are, are you going to add anything? To, no, I'm not going to add anything. Still, just have a meal. Okay, we're not going to take it too far. But it was interesting as I was praying and thinking this, this quote came to mind. I've learned that people will forget what you said. People forget. will forget what you did but people will never forget how you made them feel. Maya Angelou said that. It's interesting because Jesus spends so much time making us feel angry at him and grumble at him because the people that thought they could earn their way to get his favor couldn't. And he made them feel the gospel. He made them feel his love in a way that they had to lay their life down and really humble themselves and say, wow, if that's what it's like to love people, I can't do it. Because I can love my mom, my, my mother-in-law, I can love my kids, but I can't love the, the, the neighbor that keeps calling the cops on me. I can't love my enemy. Like what? How? No, Jesus, you can't go hang out with him. In Luke 7, it's, they called him a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He constantly hung out with tax collectors. It was like, hey, Jesus is coming to town. Yeah, he's trying to hang out with tax collector. Good luck trying to hang out with him. You're not a tax collector. Like, he just went to the lowest of the low, the outcast. And yet, in our day, how many times have we heard someone say, well, Jesus can't love me. He wouldn't love me. I, I did some things. Yeah, he probably said a cuss word. You. What, have you murdered someone the past week? Like, that's pretty low on on like our cultural, moral law of like, don't do that, and then you're bad, but you haven't, right? Well, no, I've just done other things. I'm just going to live in sin. You don't fear God. You don't know God. You don't fear sin. God's come to set you free. He calls sinners to repentance, not the self righteous. He says, I need to spend the night at your house today. That's why everyone grumbled, because it wasn't like, hey, I'm going to grab a quick cup of coffee, just an eight ounce. We'll just have a quick conversation. It was, I'm going to literally, like Revelation talks, Jesus says, I'm staying at the door and knocking. I want to come in and live with you. I want to move in. My spirit has to take up residence in your heart. It's this great exchange where the crowd is so angry at Zacchaeus, and Jesus says, no, actually, you're angry at me. Because all of his sin and shame is on me. So now your anger should be at me, and all of my right, perfect living, is on him. It's a great exchange. Jesus was saying, this is the good news. This is why the king has come. Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, but Jesus was the one who was really pursuing Zacchaeus. And that's the sovereign God had planned the route, had planned the time, had planned the stirring to get Zacchaeus up in a tree to say, hey, get out of there. I'm spending the night at your house. Which is, again, like, how could you become more like a child? Like, hey, we're done climbing trees. Let's go, let's go to your house. Is your mom making chocolate chip cookies? Or is there a movie tonight? Like, that's the tone Jesus has. That's why the crowd's like, dude, Jesus, you're not friends with that guy. It's like, no, actually, I am. I'm saving him. Like, is that the kind of hospitality we have with people? Are we welcoming them to, to meet the friend of sinners? In verse 6, it says, like a kid, Zacchaeus is like, oh, okay, and hurries out of the tree. Zacchaeus isn't like, uh, this is really awkward. Like, there's a crowd. They know I'm a sinner. Like, there's pastors and rabbis here. They have fancier, like, they have, like, more holy homes. Like, might have to take some posters down and delete my browsing history before Jesus looks. Like, Zacchaeus was in sin. And Jesus wasn't just going to come, like, grab a cup of coffee. He's going to stay at his house, which comforts us because we see that God knows who he will save. God knows when he will save. And God knows how he will save. Those are things that are of the Lord. God is the God who sees. God is the God who saves. And we grow when we love those who don't love Jesus. The crowd didn't fear God. They didn't know God. And so they got angry and grumbled. But we grow when we love those who don't love Jesus. When we introduce those who, who, who are in sin to the friend of sinners. Our, our neighbor, maybe it's, it's your neighbor that's the person who doesn't love Jesus and you're called to love them. Maybe it's, it's a spouse and there's tension and you're going, oh, we're, we're separated. We need help. Maybe it's your ex-wife or ex-husband and, and, and you're just hell-bent on destroying each other's lives. And Jesus is saying, no, actually, I've been seeking you to, to love them and, and serve them and care for them. And maybe it's a friend who's betrayed you and you're just against them and they're against you and, and you don't know and you're realizing, oh my goodness, it's, it's actually, I'm supposed to love them and lead them to Jesus. And, and, and so often in our cultural political narrative, it's, it's picking teams, it's some Trump, Maybe you're against the city planner because you're trying to build and and the county has all these taxes and you're like, oh, taxes, no, man, no. 40% of money on top of permits and all that, if I want to build something, I have to have 40% more to build in this county? This is crazy. Okay, maybe you should pray first. Maybe this is your begin with prayer and go, okay, I'm going to pray for for Newsom. I'm going to pray for Trump. I'm going to pray for those ruling in, in, in our government and I'm going to be submitting to God. Maybe I need to calm down a little bit and realize who's really on the throne. Maybe it's the popular kid at school. Maybe they're just constantly one-upping you, just manipulating you and cutting you down to make themselves look better. We grow when we love those who don't love Jesus. Are, are, Are our words pointing people to Jesus? And as a parent, you know, because every single word, when Jesus says every careless word you speak, you'll give account of, as a parent, you already feel that judgment from your kids, right? Like kids in the house, you're like, yeah, I've heard my parents say things and they're like, oh, yeah. No, well, is that actually, like your coworkers, every word we say around town, every word we say, are we pointing people to Jesus? Or are we pointing people to our teams? Is it Dodgers versus the Giants in every area? Are we cost, or is it, hey, there's actually, Enough grumbling because Jesus says, hey, that sinner, I'm going to his house. There's enough grumbling and angst with a true gospel. We don't need to add any more confusion or barriers. And the amazing thing is that Je- Zacchaeus repents and is saved after seeing Jesus. Verse 8, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. That was right after the crowd said, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And we define a sinner as anyone who who thinks, says or does anything against God or man. So the crowd rightly convicts Zacchaeus. He's like, man, he said thought, said, or done things against God or men, that he's a sinner, and yet Jesus is choosing to go spend the night at his house? What? And Zacchaeus repents, though, and is saved after seeing Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, where we see we've been called as ambassadors to preach the gospel of reconciliation. In verse 18, all these things are from God, who's reconciled us, he's brought us who were in sin, brought us close to him. And it's that ministry, it's that program that he's calling other believers to go and bring other sinners and invite them to the friend of sinners, because he's the saving God. In John 4, we're reminded that God is our savior. And again, 1 Timothy 4.10, God is the savior of all men. So if we're gonna speak about anyone doing anything good, it should be God, because the Jews had it Right? No one is good but God. And so anyone we say anything good about should be God. And he deserves that place. He's not only a savior spiritually and eternally of those who believe, but he's savior physically and temporarily even of those who don't believe. As I was meditating and right thinking about this, I'm like, oh, the God who sees. The first time we see that was when Abraham and Sarah were promised to have Isaac, but Sarah was like, Well, physically I'm not having kids, so here's Hagar. And Hagar has Ishmael. And then Sarah, because as you know, women, you're not happy about your decision. So now you're mad if you're Sarah. At Hagar, what was your decision? It's like, what? And I've never I'm not gonna say anything more about that. But She's out in, so Sarah's like, get out. And Hagar's like, all right. And so she leaves. And then she's like, well, now what am I going to do? I have this baby. I'm in the desert and the God who sees and the God who saves. But yet Ishmael is the enemy of the Jews. And I'm like, well, that really, the illustration breaks down God. That's not a good illustration. Fix it. And then God was like, no, you fix your understanding. I'm still the God who saves. My wrath is still coming against the sinner, but not today. And that's the gospel, that we understand the truth of common grace, that God is the Savior, and all of us, guilty of sin, we should be punished and feel God's wrath today, but he doesn't. In his common grace, he stays his wrath another day, giving us a chance to repent, giving us a chance to trust in him and receive the healing and the forgiveness and the restoration. And that is the beauty, that Luke is saying to Theophilus, as a disciple, keep praying, keep preaching the gospel because the God sees Zacchaeus, the worst of the worst. He sees you trying to preach the gospel to a friend or a coworker or a spouse, and they're not yet believing. But God is the God who sees and the God who saves, and he's holding his wrath back another day. And so we can rest in that, but get to work in that, because that is The reality, Zacchaeus sees Jesus and is transformed by Jesus. The amazing thing is that he, Jesus didn't come to abolish social justice programs and fix things socially and politically or economically because he would have failed if that was his mission. His mission was to bring in the kingdom now and not yet. His mission was to give us the gospel, that we would be stewards of the gospel and go and spread the gospel to the whole world. That is his mission. That's why he says, you're going to do greater things than I've done. Because I'm now in you, advancing the kingdom through you, through my love. So we see Zacchaeus and Adam and Eve. Maybe you're here like them, hiding in a tree, coming to church week in and week out. But you've yet to hear him say, hey, get out of the tree. I'm coming to your house. Believe in me, you're a sinner in need of a savior. Confess with your mouth what you believe in your heart, that you're in sin and I've come to set you free from that sin. It's not your money, it's not your works. It's surrendering to me, coming to me humble and helpless and let me fill you with my love and save you. James writes, is for those of you that maybe are believing right now and are saved, we got to celebrate a, a, a man came broken and, and, and in need of healing and salvation, and he trusted in Jesus last service. So we can praise God for that. God is still saving. And then I said, okay, now you're going to do good works. James says, faith without works is dead. If you believe that Jesus is God, good job. You're in league with the demons. Now you acknowledge what historians and demons believe Jesus is real because Jesus created demons. But do you believe in a saving faith? Is there good works that come out of your transformation that God's done in your heart? And Ephesians 2.10 says, We're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. It's not a strain. It's not a struggle. It's a walking. And that's what the beautiful picture here from Zacchaeus in verse 8. He stands and says, Lord, behold, Half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone, anything, I restore it fourfold, fourfold. He probably would have given more back, except he went above and beyond and said, it's four times the amount. I'm going to make this theft actually their best investment. I'm going to hook them up because I repent and I want to restore. And and probably some of you were like me and going, where's that from? Where's this fourfold? Did it come out of thin air? If you go back. And look at Numbers chapter 5. It's not just a book to to catch up on your Bible reading plan. Numbers is actually there for a reason. Zacchaeus knew the law. He knew in Numbers chapter 5. And again in Exodus chapter 22, if you read the first seven verses, you find that in the case of an ordinary robbery, which was what he was doing according to Exodus 22 verses 4 and 7, you paid back double. And in Numbers it was a fifth. Or about 20%. So he, he could have gone either of those routes. Either I pay back double or a fifth, 20%. But if you look at Exodus 22, verse 1, if you rob someone with violence and destruction, a fourfold repayment was required. So Zacchaeus had two lawful options. But he recognized Because the Holy Spirit taught him and convicted him that he robbed them in violence and was destroying their lives. That it was required by law to repay them fourfold. Isn't that interesting? It's a gospel that saves us for obedience. And it's not apart from the law, but it's under the law. Jesus was sinless under the law. He never sinned. And so to the crowd and all the shame they're putting on Zacchaeus, Jesus literally was like, I'm going to exchange this and you're going to know the right thing to do. And now you are righteous. And now you are pure under the law for the Jew and the Gentile because the gospel is not just for the Jew or it's for all. And so the amazing thing if God sees and God saves his Jewish people he's made a promise to. He's like, hey, Jew, you want to know the true gospel? I'm restoring Zacchaeus, fully under the law, God's law. And he's saved by grace through faith. And now he can obey the law. And he's willing right away. We see this in immediate obedience. It's not this. So I was thinking, Jesus, like, you're cool. I want you a part of my life. um, Like, I stole some money, so I'll just pay him back. Like, I'll just make it right. Okay, maybe, like, I got an extra thousand. Like, I have a lot of Righteous, like I have a lot of real, like honest money I made. Can I keep that? He didn't bargain or barter or do it. So often we do, especially in youth ministry. It's like, okay, so, like, can I kiss for two minutes? Is that sin? Like, how far can I go before it's like sin? Like that's that's so often our thought. Zacchaeus doesn't do that. He goes, well, the law, the extent, the full extent that I've wronged someone, I'm going to make it right. I'm not gonna be anywhere close to sin. And he shows us what complete transformation is. In verse nine, Jesus says to him, today salvation has come to this house since he's also a son of Abraham. He was a son of Abraham, a Jew by birth, but not spiritually, not holy, not perfectly saved and set free until he believed and was saved. So we take away from this what Jesus said in what Luke records in verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. For the Son of Man came to, came to seek and save the lost. You can only seek if you can see. So God is the God who sees and who looks for lost people. Luke was telling us over and over this theme. Lost coin, lost sheep, and more importantly, the image of God, a lost son, that the Father was looking for and was seeking when the son came a long way away, the dad ran to him. Jesus is like, that's me, I'm here. And Luke's like, that's Jesus, that's the gospel. You can't do it on your own. So we are called as believers to see this and go, okay, are we welcoming people as Jesus welcomed us? And the great way to do that is, is the bless, blessing people, beginning with prayer, listening, asking questions, eating, practicing hospitality, serving one another, and then sharing the gospel Because once we see Jesus, the last point is now that you see Jesus, serve him. Serve him. In this illustration, we can get into the idioms and and why Jesus tells this parable. But the crazy thing is King Herod died and Archelaus was given half the kingdom. But Archelaus was was intimidated by King Herod. And so once his dad died, he's like, I'm going to kill 3,000 Jews on Passover. Put them in the temple to scare them into submission. So the Romans didn't like Archelaus, the Jews didn't like him, and neither did the, the, the um, Samaritans. So the Jews and the Samaritans for one of the first times in history teamed up and they went because how it went in that day was, was Archelaus had to go to Caesar and appeal to him to become king. And he went and Caesar was there listening and all the Romans in Rome where Caesar was were like, no, Archelaus is not good. He doesn't know how to lead. He's a horrible person. So were the Jews from Jerusalem, and so were the Samaritans. Like, they had this whole entourage that traveled with him um, that were just, you know, it was kind of like some of the stuff we've seen politically, where there's, like, people are going, and there's parades, and, and people are against each other. It was that tense, and, the, and it's crazy, because Jesus is like, hey, perfect cultural, political, I'm going to just tell the story real quick. And then he's like, and by the way, at the end, I'm going to kill everyone who's against me. You're like, whoa, that took a really negative, bloody turn at the end. Jesus tells this narrative where everyone comes home from this disappointed because Caesar said, you can't be king. You're gonna be like a stand-in and hopefully one day you'll earn the right and the title, but you're not king. And the people were bummed out because they still had to submit to him as ruler. So everyone lost and Jesus is like, well, actually I'm the true king and I'm God. So I have the authority and when I come in my authority, my grace and my patience will have run out. And then it's time for my enemies to pay the price. And all of us that come to church and just play the role and open the Bible, but aren't really believing and following, what was given, the gospel will be taken from you and you'll be cast away. We've heard that, we've seen that, whether the net is drawn in and people that were close to church, they get left in the sea. The people that were in the church, but weren't followers and believers and making disciples, they get thrown out. Jesus is constantly saying, I see you, and I'm here to save you. Will you come to me? And those that don't, there's going to be justice, and there's going to be God's wrath on you. So God is the God who saves you from himself, because you've sinned against him, and the consequence is eternal separation. We see in Zechariah 14, This image on that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives and on the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to the west. So a lot different than any earthly king. Like this guy shows up and the earth is crumbling under his feet and the Lord, my God, will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day, there will be no light, no cold or frost. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. That excites us as believers. That's our little pink birdie, right? We comfort us at night when we're like, "Uh uh-oh, demons and distraction and economy and all this stuff. It's like, you know what, I'm going to hold on to the fact that I have a true king who's coming one day. And Daniel 7, the son of man, the son of David. We know that Jesus is the promised king and we know his words are true. And so the last image I want to leave with you is Revelation 19. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. That's Jesus. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were falling behind him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. See, most people don't fear sin because they don't fear God. And they don't fear God because they don't know God. And they don't know God because most preachers aren't preaching about God. And most preachers aren't preaching about God because they don't know God. I I know God through his word. And it's amazing to see the whole thing. God being the God who sees and looks for lost people from Genesis to Revelation. And he's saying the time's almost up. And when it's up, the true king is going to come and be the king of kings and lord of lords. And his robe is, is dipped in blood, the blood of the martyrs, the commentators say. So there's persecution and there's hard times and there's trials, but we can endure that joyfully knowing our king will reign forever. And so we're not supposed to retreat and build a bunker in the ground. We're supposed to build a bigger kitchen table and invite people over knowing that nothing bad or horrible is gonna come against us that God doesn't allow and use for his glory and to build his kingdom. And so are we going to be people who welcome people as Jesus welcomed us? Because we were sinners, as Paul says. You were the foolish things of the world that God's using to confound the wise. Go and be humbly, helplessly filled with God's love to serve those and lead others to know his love. Invited to meet the friend of sinners. And so I encourage you guys, we're going to take a communion now and as the elements are passed to think about those in your life that you need to be praying for. Maybe you're like, man, I've never shared about Jesus. Like I barely understand him. Like that's convicting to me. Maybe I'm not even saved. That's a healthy question. If you're here questioning, am I even saved? If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and he was died, buried, and rose from the grave, then yes, you're saved. In Romans 9 through 10, there's a period there. So there's no works. Religion or tradition in a church, they might tell you differently. They might say you need to do good. No, you don't. Jesus never said that, neither did the early church. But we see we're saved for good works. We have a new heart and new eyes to see the needs of those around us, and we have gifts through the Holy Spirit that we can meet those needs. I got a chance to to go out with Scott in in the homeless ministry on Thursday and it's great because they build those relationships week after week with that community that's in such great need and is so pushed out by our community and society. And, and to be meeting with them and praying with them, one of the ladies was like, yeah, I'm super angry and mad because they won't let me burn sage in my room at, at Echo. And I was like, well, you don't need to burn sage. And Scott's like, I'm Native American. You don't need that stuff. I'm like, it's Jesus. It's the king. You just say the name Jesus and demons flee because she's like, all these demons are coming and these evil spirits, I need to ward them off. It's like, no, you just say in Jesus' name and they have to leave because when God's spirit's in you, he's greater than he who's in the world. John encourages us. So as we grab the elements, pray in Jesus' name. Holy Spirit, open my eyes to see where I need to love like you or welcome others as you welcomed me.